What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than the garden plants. And this, this parable contains the message from our Lord Jesus Christ that we must walk by faith and not by sight. This is the message, message of this parable, and it is a vital principle that we see at work throughout all the scriptures and in our lives as well. This is a very important message to grasp. In this parable, we see that the inexperienced farmer will have to live by faith in what he knows will be the size of a very great tree. When he, when he determines to allocate a tremendous amount of space in his orchard to a very small seed, he has to do this by faith, knowing what the future size of that tree will be. It's counterintuitive to his physical eyes. It doesn't make sense. But in light of what he knows about the nature of that tree, so he plants. And he does so believing what he knows to be true about its unseen future growth. And so is uh, the kingdom of God in our lives. This principle is also taught in the text I would like to consider uh, with you all this morning. It's 1 Kings 19. If you would uh, turn there uh, with me. And as you're turning there, I will give you a little bit of background to this text. You might, you might know that our text is preceded by the extraordinary beginnings of the career of the prophet Elijah. In chapter 17 to 18, we read about Elijah's confrontation of the wicked king Ahab, king of the northern kingdom of Israel, who had taken as wife a Sidonian princess named Jezebel. It was said of Ahab that he did more wickedness than all the kings of Israel before him, greatly strengthening the practice of Baal worship, idolatrous Baal worship in Israel. But in those days, the Lord raised up a great prophet, the prophet Elijah, who was to confront this wicked practice of Baal worship and was to confront Ahab and Jezebel. So he did, and he announced a great drought and famine, one of the promised judgments from the law of God, if the law was not followed as the Lord had laid it down in Israel. He announced a great drought and famine as judgment for Israel's sin. And then he disappears for three years, and he himself is, is sustained miraculously by ravens, by the brook Cherith, and then by a Gentile widowed woman of Zarephath, whose son was raised from the dead at the prayer of the prophet. This uh, summarizes chapter 17. After these events, Elijah returns to reveal himself to Ahab after three years of being absent, and he tells him how to summon, and he tells him to summon the prophets of Baal and challenges them to a contest to show whose God would answer by fire. Baal is the storm god. There should be no problem for Baal if he is true. First Kings 18 tells of the dramatic showdown between Baal's prophets and Yahweh's prophet. Baal, of course, does not answer. He's silent, despite the, the agitations of the prophets of Baal. But Yahweh answers by fire, and he consumes the altar, despite the fact that it was completely drenched uh, by water. And the people cry, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah, with the help of the people, seizes the 450 prophets of Baal, and he slaughters them 
upon this defeat. Elijah then tells Ahab to prepare for rain. But there was no, no sign of it at all, and it hadn't rained in three years. He tells him to prepare for rain. Elijah prays, and he sends his servant seven times. And on the seventh, he sees a cloud the size of a man's hand. Small cloud. After this, the sky turns black and the heavens open. The Lord answered the prayer of Elijah and sent great rains upon the land. Elijah then runs ahead of Ahab's chariot and comes to Jezreel, the dwelling place of Ahab and Jezebel, where the seat of of government is at that time. And in light of those things, what do you think that Elijah hoped would happen next? Ask yourself that question. Maybe you've never thought about that before. If you didn't already know how the story ends, I think you would probably expect that Elijah was hoping for a subsequent dramatic religious revival to ensue. The prophets have been put to death. The people have cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What should happen next? But Ahab, who's seen all these things, to come back to Jezreel and say, Jezebel, we're returning to the Lord. The Lord is answered by fire. And, and, and Elijah is my prophet. Is that what happened? That's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. Instead of being invited to take up his rightful place as a prophet to King Ahab and leading the revival of religion in Israel, Elijah is instead delivered a death threat. So the text says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. How does Elijah respond to this? Before we answer that question, consider Elijah's calling. The few short chapters preceding our text present serious evidence that Elijah is the greatest prophet since Moses. Indeed, some might wonder if he might be the prophet like Moses, who was foretold in Deuteronomy 18. Moses had said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. Might Elijah be that prophet? Any, I think any reasonable person who had observed the mighty faith, works, and works of Elijah may well have wondered this, if he was the prophet like Moses. Uh, this is a man of bold confrontation. It's in his name, Elijah. My God is Yahweh, not Baal. He prayed for a drought. He raised the dead boy to life. He called down fire from heaven. And he was the one whom the Lord answered his prayer for rain after three years of not heeding to anyone, any voice for rain. Well, how does this man of faith respond to Jezebel's threat? I think if we're following the narrative closely, the answer, I think, is supposed to surprise us very much. Verse 3 tells us, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah, fearful of the threat of Jezebel, flees 
for his life. He retreats some 90 miles to to Beersheba, which is in uh, the southernmost territory of Judah, which is under a different king, King Jehoshaphat. So he's left the reign of Ahab, the, the realm of Ahab and Jezebel, and he's gone to the realm of Jehoshaphat, who's much closer to the worship of Yahweh. Leaving his servant there, though, he continues further. He doesn't stay in Beersheba. He continues south into the wilderness outside of Judah. And after a day's journey, he sits under a broom tree and makes a stunning request of Yahweh. He asks that he might die. I think it's at this point we need to take very diligent care that we rightly understand Elijah's frame of mind at this moment of time. We want to always be careful that we don't impose our modern thinking upon the biblical characters without due respect to the context of what, they've, what they're experiencing and what God is seeking to tell us in the, in the details that he's given us and not imagining all the details that are not given in the text. We need to be very careful not to impose our own thinking upon these these circumstances. But we want to enter into his mind with the evidence supplied to us by Holy Scripture as far as we can go uh, in that that respect. Many commentaries provide a range of opinion on the state of Elijah at, at this point in his ministry. On one side, some seem to present Elijah and want to guard him as much as possible and and present him in as positive of a light as possible, Uh, seeming really to present him as nearly sinless. He's done nothing wrong in all the verses that follow. Uh, You'll find that among some of the commentators. But probably more prominent among most modern commentators is that they seem to take an extremely negative view of Elijah here. Uh, they, They even want to seem to ascribe to him things such as manic depression, suicidal thoughts, and they really want to view all the things that he says after this event as though it's just sinful whining. That's in a number of modern uh, commentaries. I think the scripture constrains us here to take something of a middle road on this this question, uh, avoiding both of these extremes. And I'll describe this in more detail. Could Elijah, who knew Deuteronomy 18... He knew Deuteronomy 18 just as we know it. That was, his, that was his Bible. The prophet like Moses, who is to come. Could Elijah have conceived of himself as the prophet like Moses to whom the people should listen? He is the first prophet who by the Lord's power raised the dead to life. That has never happened until 1 Kings 17, that a man was raised back to life. He certainly could have believed by faith that God had raised him up to turn the spiritually dead people away from Baal and raise them back to life in the Lord in a resurrection-like moment, just as the boy was raised to life, so Israel can be raised back to life from dead idols. He could have believed this without a shred of pride, I think. He must have expected that the dramatic show of Yahweh's power on Mount Carmel would usher in a national revival. I think that's his expectation. But of course it doesn't. It doesn't usher in that national revival. Elijah, in his view, was, was thus no better than his father's. In his way of thinking, he had failed to win the hearts of the people of God. There's another important observation to be made about Elijah's death wish that I want to bring to your attention. 
Moses experienced something very similar in Numbers chapter 11. Maybe you're remembering this as I, as I read this passage. Upon Israel complaining to God about the manna that he had given them in the wilderness, and they began faithlessly groaning for meat, we, all we have is this worthless food that, that God has rained down on us and tastes sweet like honey. They're complaining, we, we want meat. Give us meat. They're faithlessly groaning for meat. Moses says something very similar. And at the end of what he says, he says, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. It's first, uh, that's uh, Numbers chapter 11, verses 14 to 15. So Elijah's prayer that the Lord would kill him really seems to mirror the prayer of Moses in that instance. And there are several other details recorded in this passage that indicate that Elijah here is acting as a, as a sort of second Moses figure. And there's many details in this passage that line, line up very closely with the experience of Moses, particularly in the wilderness. Time fails us to look at many of those, but you'll see several of them uh, in, the, in the words that follow. Upon grief of the people's idolatry and hardness of heart, Elijah, bearing the burden of, the, of this rejection of the covenant and the apparent failure of the cause of God in Israel, he also wishes to die at the hand of the Lord. Now, it needs to be said in a passage like this, that there is a great difference between wanting to die and wanting to kill yourself in suicide. There is a, a world of difference between those two things. Elijah is not here experiencing suicidal thoughts, categorically. He is not experiencing suicidal thoughts. These are the words of a man who deeply bears the grief and the pain and the rejection of his message from Yahweh and has now become discouraged and disillusioned about God's future for the nation, the nation of promise, the nation of the covenant. Do you see what Elijah bears here? He was, in this sense, a very unique figure, as was Moses. In a real sense, he is bearing the burden of the people of God, as Moses did. So we should be careful here not to view his state disconnected from the flow of the narrative and make very simplistic applications, as warranted as they are, as much as we want them to, to speak to very specific applications. We need to take great care, because Elijah here... His, his depression uh, is, is, is different. He, he is bearing a burden that, that none of us bear. He is unique in this sense. So we need, to be, we need to take care as we look at a passage like this, not to make very simplistic one-to-one -one, uh, applications. Now, this, this, the, he's bearing this burden of Israel uh, before the Lord and taking it to the Lord is, is, I think, made very obvious by verse 10. If you'll look down uh, at his, his response. Uh, we'll get to this in a moment, uh, but just to skip ahead for just a moment. Uh, his bearing the burden of the people of Israel is, is manifest in, in verse 10. When Elijah arrives at the mountain, the Lord asks him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it. Away. 
Now, the Apostle Paul comments on this, this, these words of Elijah in Romans chapter 11. And he says that Elijah is testifying against Israel. And those words are very important. Elijah is bearing witness. He's testifying against Israel. Now, that, that's the language of the court. Elijah, in his capacity as a prophet, is here acting as a covenant lawyer, bringing a lawsuit against God's disobedient and faithless people. Elijah is indeed jealous for the Lord. In his view, failure to repent of the events at Mount Carmel have sealed Israel's violation of the covenant with Yahweh. If they will not turn back to God at that marvelous display, what can save them? Only God. So Elijah, the prophet of God, petitions Yahweh against Israel, charging them with forsaking the covenant, throwing down the altars of Yahweh, and killing the prophets of the Lord, even seeking his own life now. Now, unlike, unlike some that have commented, I don't find reason to doubt the legitimacy of Elijah's statement that he is jealous for the Lord. I, think, I, think, I believe the context constrains us to acknowledge that he's making a true statement. I believe, however, Elijah does reveal, I think, something of his weakness so I think his jealousy is valid. It's, it's true and appropriate, that, that the things that he is saying. He is jealous for the Lord. But Elijah does reveal something of his weakness and unbelief in the, in the very final portion of the petition. If you look there at the end, he says, I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Is that, is that true? If you know the events uh, that took place in 1 Kings 18, we know that there's Obadiah, who hid a hundred uh, prophets in the cave, hiding from Jezebel. Elijah knows this. He spoke with Obadiah. He, he knows that those prophets are living. Uh, so, so is this a true statement? I, I think in this statement, Elijah reveals that he is, in this brief moment, he is walking by sight and not by faith in this. Although Elijah's petition against Israel is, is largely true and I think, I think righteous and appropriate, he's bearing the burden of Israel, he's, he's, he's testifying against them, as the Apostle Paul says, Elijah does not realize that God is working in a way that he is not expecting. The truth that we'll see shortly is that Yahweh's greatest work is not carried out by fire from heaven, but by something unexpected humble, and quiet. So this was Elijah's reaction. But now let's consider Yahweh's dealings with Elijah, beginning there in verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now notice first what does not take place in those verses uh, of the Lord's response to Elijah. You'll notice the Lord does not briskly rebuke Elijah for his flight. That's not there. He does not chastise him for leaving the line of duty at the threat of a woman. 
The Lord sees Elijah in his grief. And what does he do? He feeds him. He brings him food and water in a desert place, in the wilderness. This is reminiscent of Yahweh's provision for Israel in the same wilderness. He gives him sleep and feeds him again, telling him, The journey is too great for you. This is the angel of the Lord speaking to Elijah. The journey is too great for you. Where is it that the Lord is leading Elijah? Here we see God's caring guidance of Elijah to Mount Horeb. Elijah travels in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if you know geography, some of you may have studied the geography of the ancient Near East. It doesn't take 40 days and 40 nights to get from where Elijah is to Mount Horeb. It takes much less. Uh, So why the number 40? Well, if the number 40 sounds familiar to you, uh, this is the same amount of time that Moses communed with God with no food and no water on the mountain. And it is the same 40 days and 40 nights that the Lord Jesus was in the wilderness with no food and no water, all reminiscent of the 40 years of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. So Elijah's here uh, wandering in the wilderness to Horeb, looks back, and it looks forward to someone else. We'll see more of that later. But first consider, why Mount Horeb? Maybe you know what that is. Maybe some of you this is not familiar. What is, what is Mount Horeb? This is Mount Sinai. This is Mount Sinai. This is the place where the covenant was made with Israel. This is where Israel received the Ten Commandments and vowed to follow the Lord only. Here Elijah comes with the Lord's sustaining blessing and guidance, you see from the text, to Mount Sinai to petition the God of the covenant. You see in verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? The Lord asks Elijah a question. Some have interpreted this question as a a kind of rebuke uh, to Elijah. The difficulty with that, however, is, is the Lord has sustained Elijah, and he's told him about this journey. Whether it was Elijah's idea to go to Sinai, the Lord has sustained him and directed him there. He's not met him in the wilderness and rebuked him and told him to go back. He sustained him to go there. Uh, So I don't think the Lord would do this in order to just come there and rebuke him and say, what what are you doing here, Elijah, as if he shouldn't be here and he should turn around and go back. I don't think that quite uh, fits the narrative there. I think the simpler reading of this question is right. Yahweh asks Elijah, what have you come here for? What is it that you've come here to talk to me about? Elijah, at the Lord's invitation renders his testimony against Israel, which we have already read in verse 10, and we'll read it again. It's repeated in verse 14 a little bit later. At the conclusion of this complaint, Elijah, who has come to Sinai, and in in so many ways reminiscent of Moses and Israel before him, has the Lord answer him in a glorious theophany, and that is an appearance of the glory of God. No man has seen God at any time. But God has revealed himself at specific uh, times and places in redemptive history in the scriptures where the sight of his glory has been revealed uh, to men, his Shekinah glory. 
this is uh, so much, this instance before us, uh, which we're about to read, is so much like the appearances of the Shekinah glory, which Yahweh uh, gave to Israel on the same mountain uh, so many years ago. And you'll see there in verse 11 as it's detailed. And Yahweh said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. You hear there the echoes of Exodus 34 when he passed by. Where is Elijah? In a cave. Some commentators argue that this could perhaps be the same cleft that he hides Moses in. We don't know that. But it's certainly very similar. The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Now, time fails us uh, this morning to show the similarities of this appearance of God with the events of Exodus 3, Exodus 19 and 20, uh, with the giving of the law. Exodus 3, of course, the burning bush uh, theophany that, that is to Moses. And 34, where God appears to Moses on the mountain and hides him in the cleft of the rock and passes by him. Uh, proclaiming his name. There's many similarities to all of these passages here at present in this, in this uh, time with Elijah here. I believe this present passage remarkably parallels those wondrous manifestations of the glory of God uh, to the people of Israel. Uh, the point is, Yahweh here appears to Elijah in the same way that he appears to Moses in Israel at Sinai, but specifically Moses. But here there is a significant development which gets to the very heart of the prophet Elijah's misunderstanding and discouragement about the cause of God in Israel. And that is, Elijah, the prophet of fire, discouraged because fire from heaven doesn't bring national repentance, is shown that God is not primarily working in those great and terrible displays of his power, but particularly in his quiet and unexpected word, his word. The still small voice, the King James Version uh, renders it. This still small voice is what draws Elijah out of the cave to meet with God and receive the reply of the Lord to his complaint. And the Lord invites him again to make his case known. He says again, what are you doing here, Elijah? To which Elijah responds in verse 14 with the same words. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. At this, the Lord answers Elijah in two ways. First, he agrees with Elijah's testimony of Israel's spiritual state and that they are covenant breakers and will now receive divine judgment. So he gives orders to Elijah to carry this out. If you'll see there beginning in verse 15, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria And Jehu you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. 
And, and why is this? And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Here we see that, a lot, that Yahweh is going to judge Israel, and he's going to put to death these idolaters that Elijah has testified against. He agrees with Elijah, and he answers him approvingly, charging that Elijah is to go and appoint those very means by which the idolaters will be judged. But second, notice that the Lord answers not only in judgment, but in mercy. In mercy. Yahweh will not only judge the idolaters, but he discloses to Elijah something that will correct and overturn the faithlessness and the, and the unbelief of the prophet. What does he say in, in verse 18? Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Is Elijah the only one? Is it true? Yahweh says, it's not true. Yahweh here makes, him, makes known to Elijah, you are not the only one left. I have kept men faithful to myself through this evil day. I have not failed. My cause has not faltered despite what you may have thought. While Elijah had expected victory in a dramatic and confrontational way, how is the Lord working? The Lord was actually working through quiet and unexpected means to judge the wicked and to preserve his people, just like he does today. The appearance of the success of evil should not discourage Elijah, and it should not discourage us today. But he and we shall walk by faith and not by sight. Victory is at hand, but not in the way that Elijah was expecting. Now, there was another great prophet who I think had a very similar misunderstanding. As he sat in a prison cell in Judea under the threat of an evil and powerful woman, He, for a brief moment, walked by sight and not by faith. He had sowed the seeds of national revival. Everyone came to the Jordan to be baptized by him. He handed it all over to a man whom he said had the spirit, not a double portion, he had the spirit without measure. But instead of his taking up a a loud Dramatic and confrontational ministry forcefully into the heart of Jerusalem, as Jews may have hoped. This man was spending much of his time ministering on the outskirts of society, away from his throne, to the blind, lame, leprous, and the poor. Where was the great revival which the Jews had hoped for? So John sent to Jesus. And he asked, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for someone else? He seems to be asking, are you the prophet that we have been waiting for? 
Are you really the messianic prophet like Moses? You, you don't seem like it to me at this moment in time. John the Baptist, the heir of Elijah's mantle, sitting in a prison cell with his life in the hands of an evil queen. Does that sound familiar? Just like, just like Elijah. He seems to make the same mistake as Elijah did. The kingdom of God has come in a way that he did not expect either. Not with fire and wind and raw power, but in the humble and the quiet, in the flesh and the blood, in mercy and in grace and humiliation and shameful death on the cross. By these unexpected means, despite the appearance of the victory of the enemies of God, John is in a prison cell. Jesus is away from his place of authority out of Jerusalem. The remnant of Yahweh is to be saved amidst that appearance of victory. Not long after John's death, the Lord asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter responds to the Lord, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how does the Lord Jesus respond to Peter? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter said this by faith and not because of sight. And it was after this that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain. For a few brief moments, the veil of humiliation was lifted back. And the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is revealed to their sight. In the transfiguration, Jesus appears to these three in the image of the same Shekinah glory that Yahweh had revealed himself on Mount Sinai to Moses and to Elijah. And who is it who appears at the right hand and at the left hand of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is Moses and it is Elijah. The two men who asked to die because of grief for the people, standing next to the one who would willingly die for his people and be raised to life. And the Lord speaks from heaven, the Father speaks from heaven, saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Do you hear those words? Listen to him. You remember Deuteronomy 18, the prophet like Moses. In this, I will raise up a, a prophet like Moses from among the people. To him you shall listen. In this, the father signifies that Jesus is the prophet like Moses, to whom the people are to listen. The Lord Jesus is the still, small voice who is bringing salvation to the remnant of Israel, not by dramatic works of power, but by his own humiliation and death. He was the only one who could cure Israel of its wicked idolatry. Nothing, nothing Elijah could do could cure the heart of Israel. Only the still small voice, that word of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
By his righteous life and death on behalf of sinners, Jesus purifies the hearts of idolaters in a way that no fiery show of power could ever accomplish. Elijah was a faithful and powerful prophet of the Lord, but his purpose was to point forward to that great prophet who would perfectly bear and cleanse, bear the sin and cleanse the hearts of his people in his atoning death. Elijah points forward to the Lord. And I think this is at the center of 1 Kings 19. This passage drips with anticipation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the kind of ministry that he would fulfill in his humiliation. The, the, the kind of glory that would be invisible to the sight of unbelieving men who could not see past the veil of humiliation. And this is why the Lord led Elijah to Mount Horeb on this day and why he didn't send him back in the wilderness south of Beersheba. The Lord is here encouraging his servant and he is pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ who would come clothed in humiliation, not appealing to our sight, but to the eyes of faith, the Lord of glory. He was and is and is to be that still small voice who was and never ceased to be the Lord of glory. So in light of this, what are some lessons which we can uh, take by way of application from this narrative of Elijah and the Lord's dealings with him? First, let's consider Elijah's jealousy. I've argued that Elijah's grief in this passage was in large part driven by the hardness of heart and disobedience of the covenant people of God and the fact that, that the covenant people of God seem to be in jeopardy. He bears that grief. Despite the signs and wonders that were worked by Elijah on Mount Carmel, Elijah was afraid to be put to death by Jezebel, but the greatest grief that he experienced that made him want to die was the failure of the people to repent and renew the covenant despite such clear showings of Yahweh's power over dead idols. Elijah was jealous for God. And so I think the question is, is put to us also as we, in, light of, in light of Elijah's jealousy. Are you jealous for God? What is it that makes you downcast? What is it that makes us downcast? Is jealousy for God ever the source of depression for you? Have you ever been jealous for the Lord and for his cause. Can your heart ever say with the psalmist, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Elijah was jealous for God, but his zeal points us again to the perfect zeal of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are not zealous today, if you are not jealous for God, look to him who is jealous because he bore the curse on our behalf for our lack of jealousy and love for the cause of God and Christ in the world. And he has fulfilled righteously that, that for us. And that, that is made available to us by faith. 
Elijah's zealousness pointed us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, for, for whom the house of God, zeal, consumed him. So let us petition our jealous Savior, who is perfectly jealous for the Lord, that we would have a more fervent jealousy also for his cause in the world. Second, what did Elijah do in his great grief? Notice this. This is very important. We're not Elijah. None of us bear the burden in the same way of the whole nation of Israel. Uh, Perhaps pastors in particular can relate to Elijah because of bearing the burdens of the people of God. Uh, Yet, all the same, Elijah's, uh, what he has done here in the midst of his grief is an example for us as well. Uh, What does he do when he is greatly grieved? Now, some of you are sitting here uh, this morning, and and you may be identifying a great deal with Elijah and his grief and some of the things that he uh, the text says about him. You may, be, you may be greatly cast down because of some great grief or trial. Are you here this morning and downcast? Are you broken over the sins of others? Are you broken at your own hardness of heart? Are you depressed about some matter that you don't feel is very spiritual at all and maybe carnal and fleshly? Is there anyone here that wants to die? If you're not experiencing it right now, Elijah's grief is, I think, a real experience that the Lord's choicest servants can go through. Many faithful servants of God suffer like this in this sin-cursed world, even being brought to the point where they want to die. They're not tempted to take their own life, but they feel pushed to it, to the end of themselves. But what did Elijah do in his grief and in his depression? What does he do? What did he do when he wanted to die? You see, James says that Elijah was a man like us. But he prayed. He prayed. What should you do if you are downcast and depressed? What should you do if you want to die? Our sinful tendency is to turn in on ourselves and hide those feelings and those thoughts from the Lord. Is it not to hide our shame behind those fig leaves? But this is not what Elijah does here, is it? He does not bear this to himself and continue on. He takes it to the Lord. He spills his soul to the Lord. This is what Elijah did, and this is what you should do as well. Go to the Lord in your despair, as Elijah did. You have no need anymore to go all the way to Mount Sinai. There is no need to do that. As a matter of fact, you don't need to go to any tabernacle or temple. You don't need to go to the mountain where the covenant was made, because the apostle tells us in Hebrews that we can boldly enter into the holy place to make petition to our king. We can boldly enter into the throne of grace. And his promise to his people is that he will help us in time of need. He will be our help in our sorrows and in our griefs. 
Why are you cast down, the psalmist says, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Young people, memorize that, memorize that song. Because it, it may not seem real to you right now, but it certainly will seem real to you one day. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. I shall again praise him. Despite how I feel, my hope is in him. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I have nothing. He is my salvation and my hope is in him. Third, and following from this, notice also the tender love and kindness that the Lord pours upon his discouraged servant. Do you see how tenderly the Lord deals with Elijah here, despite the fact that there is a lack of faith in his, in his complaint? The Lord gives Elijah food and water. He gives him sleep. The Lord invites Elijah to spill his soul out to him. And then the Lord answers him by his word. How does this apply to you? If you are a child of God and if you are suffering and grieving and facing bitter discouragement, and if you pour your soul out to the Lord, he will be your comfort. Believer, does he not care for you? Has he not loved you with an everlasting love? Would he who gave you his own son not give you all things that are good for you? The Lord is good, and we can count on the fact that that though his dealings with us and our sin are not pleasant, he is kind, he is loving, and he is working all things together for your good. And sometimes we need to be bruised. Sometimes we need to have our, our, our hopes dashed when they're in carnal things and when they're not in accordance with the plan of God. And that's going to take, that will take a lot of pain for you. But it's good. It's good to go through this. The psalmist says it's good for me that I was afflicted. And it will be good for us as well. Rest on the promises of God in the midst of these trials. Endeavor to believe the still small voice, the last thing you want to look at when you're suffering sometimes is that still small voice. When your hope in man has failed, when your hope in yourself has failed, when you're put to it, when you've lost great and grievous things, the still small voice is in your hand. Pick it up and, and read it. It will be a help to your soul. Fourth, we learn in this passage that the Lord is working in ways that man does not expect. I think that's one of the central themes of this, this passage. And much of the scriptures, for that matter. Now, some of us are tempted to look around and feel nervous and fearful about the advance of the darkness around us. It's real. Sometimes we hear things that, that, that have sent chills up our spine. And they cause us to wonder, what's, what's life going to be like for my kids? We bear that. Some of us are afraid. And some of us are afraid 
and are tempted to be fear mongers as well. That's a temptation that we face. Are you discouraged by the appearance of defeat in our world today, in our country? Have you forgotten the power of the Lord's still, small voice? Working behind the scenes, upholding his purposes and fulfilling his promises to build his church? We must not be discouraged about the cause of God in this world. But recognize that even when the wicked seem to be the strongest. How many times have we seen this in scripture? Even when the, the wicked seem strongest, the Lord is already undermining, undermining them, their plans, and sifting the ground out from under their feet. It's already happening. At the time, they feel they're at their zenith of power. It's only upward from here. God is pulling the rug out right from under them, and they don't see it because of their pride. We have seen their end, brethren. Their feet are set in slippery places, so we should not despair. The Lord may not appear to our eyes to win down here. There's a tendency in this day and age to want to demand of God that we have a complete Christianization of the world before the return of Jesus Christ. But this is not what the Lord promises to us. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there are who find it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Brethren, how much of the word of God would be invalidated if we had a complete Christianization of the world before the return of Christ? You'll have to run circles around those texts. We, the, the scriptures, the New Testament, is, is relevant to each generation of the church. We will suffer, our children will suffer for the cause of Christ until the Lord returns in glory, when he puts his enemies under his feet and he shows that, you know, the whole time, the whole time, you, you all were looking at carnal things. You were looking at the transfer of wealth. You were looking at building kingdoms. All that time I was raising up people for myself from all the nations and building them into a beautiful, glorious church. And you didn't even see it because you were so proud. Look where you are now. That's happening uh, right at this moment. The Lord may not appear to be winning down here, brethren, but he is certainly overcoming the wicked of this world. To the eyes of faith, he is always victorious. How? He is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. By, by no means. This requires the eyes of faith. Lastly, some of you are here without Christ. If you are not in Christ, you have no part in any of these words of comfort, which I've been talking about this morning. Because of your sin, you face the terrible wrath of God that the Lord shone forth in fire and wind and earthquake here in this passage. And that ought to terrify you. Some of you are sitting here in the spirit of Jezebel. Your heart is so hard that even if wondrous signs and showings of God were to take place among us, you still wouldn't believe. I think that's also what this passage teaches us. The wondrous things that Ahab and Jezebel saw and that 
eyewitness testimony. And they would not repent. And they would not trust the Lord and turn to the Lord. Have you considered that if you are not hearing God's word right now, right where you sit, if you are not hearing this word, the still small voice, you won't even believe that the Lord would send fire from heaven to consume this pulpit before all of our eyes. You must heed that still small voice, the word of God, and not look for signs and wonders. Like Jezebel, you may be presuming that because all is well for you in the present, despite what you have done, no judgment will ever come upon you for your sin. That is a grievous, grievous misunderstanding. And so the things that are said from this pulpit are, are not of any weight to you. And that should terrify you. Here from, from this book, from this pulpit, come to you the words of life, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, the still small voice which carries the truth about your sin against God and the mercy offered to you freely in Jesus Christ. Do you care for your own soul? Listen to that still small voice. Read this word, because if you will not heed the words of God, you will not ever believe for the signs and wonders and glory. But today is still, as I stand here, a day of grace. Turn to him and live. Turn to that prophet like Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. Come unto me, he says. Come unto me. If you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, if you will listen to him, you will be saved. And the comfort that is for God's people will be your comfort also. Let's pray. Our Father, what a privilege, what a privilege it is to have your word in our language, that still small voice. Oh, Lord, make it dear to each one of us in this room. Uphold the downcast, strengthen our weak knees and our, our feeble, feeble bodies and our feeble faith. Strengthen us, Lord, help us to live faithfully in this life that appears to be with the victory of God's enemies. It is certainly not. You will reign victorious. You do reign victorious. Help us to believe it, and may your people be greatly strengthened. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.